We have free upward shift meditations with ashram teachers live on Instagram. These are on currently each day at 8.30am Melbourne time during our lockdown. Tomorrow morning's upward shift program will be a special live stream of the Guru Gita chant with Guruji. And this will be on Instagram Live and also available as part of our regular weekly online membership. Also, we have our next mini retreat and intensive coming up on the 1st to the 3rd of October. And further details about this weekend will be coming soon. Next Saturday, our next satsang is on the 24th of July and this is a significant night on the ashram calendar because we're celebrating Guru Purnima. So please join us for this. Welcome everyone to tonight's satsang. <clears throat> and uh, as Swami Paramananda said, uh, we're once again in lockdown. It's happened so many times. We're quite habituated to it, but we hope one day it goes away. And uh, because of that, it's just the astromites here, and then everybody in radio land. Uh, next week, as she also said, we have Guru Purnima. Guru Purnima is a very significant day in my life, and it's a significant day for devotees of the Guru everywhere. And so I was hoping that uh, we'd have a big festival uh, so we may just have to have our lockdown festival, but it'll be full of Shakti anyway. But I promise you that when everyone comes back, we'll have a big festival. Yay. And, uh, and we'll have a great thing. <clears throat> we'll shake sugary. Uh, so I always like to begin my programs by quoting Baba, my guru, Baba Muktananda, who always began his programs by saying in Hindi, Sabko Bharasanmane Kesat Premse Hardik Swagat. With great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that welcome is the essence of spirituality. So, in that uh, spirit, I want to welcome you all. And tonight, uh, I'm going to do the program with Devi Ma's help called Notes from the Tea Shop. And Notes from the Tea Shop is a reference to a, a, my um, ongoing uh, column in the Siddhapath magazine many years ago, which I called Notes from the Tea Shop, in honor of all the good times that I spent in the Ganeshpuri Tea Shop after lunch uh, during the times of my sadhana in Ganeshpuri. And I'd go and I'd contemplate the meaning of reality over a cup of chai. And so uh, I'd often write down different thoughts I had. And uh, these notes from the tea shop, they're not from those days. I wish I had my notebooks from those days. But more recent years, I've collected uh, over 400 of these notes. And that's working on my next book. What do we have? <laughs> Is it a little bug? <laughs> <clears throat> and so David Ma is going to, uh, oh, we have a, a photograph of um, a tea shop. 
people uh, have said that must be photoshopped. And I say, uh, well, I say yes. <laughs> and some of the cast of characters in the tea shop after lunch there. <clears throat> okay, so um, the way we'll do this is uh, David Ma will read a line and uh, we'll comment on these. Notes from the tea shop. First one is called Broad Mind, Deep Feeling. Broad thought is open-minded. Broad thought is the most unitive. The narrow mind is a closed mind. Okay, so we're having two things in this, in this note. The broad and the deep. And the open mind, we used to talk about back in my university days, being the open mind open-minded, not to hold close to some dogma, some doctrine, some belief system, but to be open-minded to others, that a mind that's broad can allow new ideas to come in and transform it. So this is one quality, broad-mindedness. It's open and it's unitive because it doesn't create separation. Narrow-mindedness, you know, some kinds of fundamental fundamentalism, whether it's religious fundamentalism or social fundamentalism or philosophical fundamentalism. Uh, that's not unitive, that's separative. It creates uh, controversy, it creates difficulty, it creates argument, and so on. <clears throat> and narrow, that's called the narrow mind. And the narrow mind is a closed mind. It doesn't allow possibility. So that's one aspect. Now we have the aspect of feeling. Deep feeling is the heart. It is human. It is compassion. That which is only intellectual is shallow. To be deep is to touch the heart. So in any moment we can be broad or we can be deep or we can be broad and deep or we can be narrow and shallow. <laughs> so the feeling aspect is human. It's compassionate. It's feeling. It's in the moment. It doesn't have a concept. It's a quality of openness and of joy. <clears throat> and finally? That which is most broad and most deep, most profound, is God. So if you, if you uh, take broadness and go as far to broadness as you can, you're still not at the goal. And if you're full of deep, deep, deep feeling, but you still are not at the goal, but if you can combine depth with broadness, then you have the goal. God is completely deep, full of love, and is also broad. And he he, the whole universe is in him. He's created everything. Everything in its opposite is all 
part of God's creation. So we should uh, learn to mirror that. And when we're, uh, when we're shallow in terms of feeling, we should learn to go deeper. And when we're narrow in terms of intellect, we should learn to be broader. <clears throat> so what do we have broad? That which is most broad and most deep. God is in both dimensions. That is God. Next. What does Ramana like? This is a, um, <clears throat> a reprise of uh, last week's. I, I was so enchanted with the, um, the little anecdote that uh, uh, Nagama told about Ramana that I put it into a, um, a note from the tea shop. What does Ramana like? <laughs> Devma? Ramana says... You ask me what I like. What I like is to know who I am and to remain as I am, understanding that what is to happen will happen, and what is not to happen will not happen. So if you were there last time, you know that uh, there was a, an event that happened in Ramana Maharshi's ashram where they wanted, the trustees and other guests wanted him to make a decision about some item of ashram uh, decoration. And he said, I don't really want to make a decision. You guys make a decision and I'll support that. But what is the Swami really like, they wanted to say. And he said, this is what I really like, to remain as I am and to know whatever's going to happen will happen. A wonderful thought. What we really want is not to have this outcome or that outcome, but to remain as we are. What could be easier than to remain as you are? Because you're that anyway. And yet, what a lofty goal it is, is to simply be content with how you are and what you are and let everything unfold. Go on. Again. What Bhagavan likes best is to remain silent without doing anything. That's what he said. <laughs> I want to remain silent without doing anything. Go on. This is the perfect expression of Bhavana Rako. So I've often said that Bhavana Rako, Bhagavan's statement to keep the feeling is the essence of spirituality. It's the essence of the path of Shiva Yoga is to hold on to the pure feeling of the self. It's a feeling of love and it's a feeling of peace and contentedness. <clears throat> and to hold that feeling when you have it and to run like hell to get back to it when you don't have it and to be committed to that feeling. So Bhagwan Ramana, Ramana Maharshi, was committed to the same yoga. He wanted to keep the feeling. <clears throat> so it's a perfect expression. In other words, don't bother me about externals and details. Okay. Ramana stands for prioritizing the state of the self, bhavana rako. So to, to make it your priority, what is the priority? You make that as your central value. What would your life be like if keeping that feeling were your central value. 
why don't we keep that feeling? It's because we prioritize some other end, some other issue over keeping that feeling. Some issue with a person, some issue with money or with objects or with, you know, the way people regard you, things like that. We make all these more important than keeping the feeling. What a great being like Raman Maharshi or Bhagwan Nityananda or Baba Muktananda represents for us is that they prioritize the state, the feeling state of the self. And so even if something takes them away from it, they are committed to getting back to it. That's their commitment, and that's our commitment when we walk this path, and we grow in that commitment. At the beginning, we're swept away by something that happens, and then we forget what we're doing, and we're caught in that thing, and then suddenly we wake up and say, wait a minute, I'm a yogi. I want to come back to that space of good feeling, that bhavana rako, that space of Ramana Maharshi just being as he is. And we remember that and we come back to it. And then as we grow, we get more uh, located, centered in that space, and it's easier to come back to it as we, as we make a, a deep uh, pathway in our being to that space. So this is what prioritizing uh, the state of the self means. Make it our top priority. That's no joke. We prioritize so many other things. Uh, the way people think about us, the way people talk about us, our position, our place, our this and that, so many other things. But Bhagavan Nityananda represents a person who simply prioritizes being in himself. He doesn't put anything in front of that. Go on. One person says blue, one person says red. I might like blue better, but if I say that, Someone will feel bad unnecessarily. More than blue, I like peace. So I say nothing because peace is what Bhagavan wants. Then I can be in my own good space. This is uh, speaking for uh, Ramana. This is what he's saying. Someone says blue, someone says red. Why should I comment on it? He may even like blue better. <clears throat> He surrenders his preference to the higher good. And the last one. He has given his devotees a discipline. Work things out among yourselves and come to an agreement. It's a very high bar. It's a very, <laughs> he's given his devotees a very difficult task, which is to agree about things, which is almost impossible. <clears throat> so, okay. Now we have a set of them. This is a, a set about my favorite things. Consciousness. Um, the first one's called the core of the universe. You have to put up with me in these. Okay. Go ahead. The core of the universe. Go ahead. Is the core of the universe conscious or not? Big question. Big question. Next point. The scientific view, the mechanical world view, sees the universe as a gigantic machine with no creating intelligence behind it. 
Just look at that directly. Our culture, all of uh, Western society, essentially holds this point of view, the scientific culture, that the universe uh, just is, and there's no great overarching intelligence behind it, this scientific point of view. Next point. In this view, the universe is unconscious. Just unconscious, place of chance and happenstance. Go ahead. If so, then the advent of consciousness is an unexplainable miracle. So if the universe is unconscious, then how do you explain consciousness happening? And this is, I've talked about it before, that science has this very charming term for it, saying it's the explanatory gap, which means we don't know. How could consciousness arise from inert matter? So no matter how they twist their brains, they can't work it out. Can't work it out. So instead of saying, it's a miracle, they say there's an explanatory gap. <clears throat> Since both views need a miracle, we may as well assume that the universe has always been conscious. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> to think that the universe is conscious and consciousness runs the whole show is quite miraculous. And hard-headed Western scientists will say that's ridiculous, that's, that's miraculous, that's fantasy. But then you say, but then how did consciousness first occur anyway? And that's a miracle in itself. So they believe in a miracle too, but they won't admit it. So we may as well believe in our miracle, that the universe is conscious and has always been conscious. <laughs> Next. Do you follow that? Yeah. Huh? You want to fight with it? Come on. That's quite convincing. I love that. Yeah? Good. Even scientists believe in miracles. They believe in miracle. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Even hard-headed uh, uh, scientists. Yeah, so two miracles. Good. That's my point. The next one's called the cult of objectivity. <laughs> this is really very indulgent to me, isn't it? Go on. The distinguishing feature of consciousness is interiority. I've, I say this all the time. The feature that consciousness can turn within, that there's a within, everything else is a surface, you see? But consciousness has a within, turns within. Go ahead. Science emphasizes objectivity. You hear that all the time, don't you? Objective, we have to be objective. Can't let subjective elements into it. This is science, go ahead. Therefore, consciousness is an embarrassing subjectivity. Very embarrassing, the subject. Extremely embarrassing. I'm gonna point out a little later how, what extremes the Western mind has gone to get rid of subjectivity. In the 60s, psychology and philosophy banished interiority. 
I ran up against this in my university career. I'll explain. Go on. The next one. The psychologists became behaviorists. The only thing they would deal with are visible and measurable external behaviors. This is this I ran into this at Columbia. I was thinking about psychology as a possible major. So I took Psych, psych 101 and I was put in a lab and I was given a rat and I was um, they put it out a cage and they we issued pellets. Uh, the rat could touch a bar and get a pellet of food. And then we chartered something or other about, we conditioned it in various ways. I forgot how it all worked. But it seemed to me it was very far from what I thought psychology should be about, which I thought would be something about the human mind. And uh, th this was called uh, behaviorism, which is based only on behaviors, not on anything interior, but only on behaviors. And there was a school of psychology at that time that felt that, what, that psychology should only be measurable externally. <clears throat> and then the same thing happened in philosophy. Next one. The philosophers became analytic. They banished metaphysics and said that interiority is preposterous. They refused to acknowledge that there is a ghost in the machine. Gilbert Ryle. Gilbert Ryle is the philosopher who said that the, the belief that you have an inner life is superstitious <laughs> and that in, you're a machine and to think there's a ghost in the machine, which is your soul or your, your mind, is ridiculous. There's a ghost in the machine. You're just a machine. Stop trying to think there's a ghost in the machine. And this is what philosophy, so philosophy couldn't speculate about the meaning of life and God, those are meaningless questions, only meaningful questions like how do, how do you form sentences and how, you know, things like that. <clears throat> Next point. Everyone knows there is a ghost in the machine, that we have an inner world, that there is interiority. Ha ha. How can you deny what is plainly obvious? So I was in all these classes and these people were saying these things and I knew that there was a ghost in my machine. And that ghost was me. And I looked at everybody else had a ghost in their machine too. And Gilbert Ryle and all those people couldn't get rid of that ghost. You know what I'm saying? Everyone has a, is a, an inner being. It's very strange. Ha ha ha. Are they arguing with religion? Is that of what course they are. Oh. But they're arguing with uh, common sense also. Okay, that's that one. Next one. <laughs> are you still with me? <laughs> this one is called Value Defined in the Universe of Consciousness. Morality Revisited. <laughs> it's a very strange title. What, what, how do we... How do we uh, what is valuable in the world of consciousness? In the world that is full of consciousness, what are the highest values? <clears throat> a different way of approaching morality. In morality, we say things are you're good or bad. You're punished by God or you're uh, rewarded by God. Okay, so point. 
All value is derived from consciousness. Okay. Good. Next point. That which moves towards a greater consciousness, a greater immersion in consciousness, greater realization of consciousness is defined as good. That is that which moves towards oneness, love, luminous wisdom, and peace is good. That's the definition. In the world of consciousness, the definition of good is that which moves towards consciousness. How do you know it moves towards consciousness? Greater joy, greater wisdom, greater light. That's moving towards that. So that's good. Whenever a movement towards those things is good. Go ahead. That which moves away from the light of consciousness into darkness, dullness, materiality, and separation is bad. So bad means moving away from the light. And if you look at your life, you'll see that there are many movements away from consciousness, from light, and many movements towards the light. Those are usually yogic efforts, or maybe grace, movements towards the light. So, and we know that as a yogi, we know that when we move towards the light, that's good. We move away from the light, that's not good, that's bad. And it's very difficult to say, well, who wouldn't want to move towards the light? A moth wants to move towards the light, right? But human beings are more perverse than moths. <clears throat> and we often move towards the darkness. Sometimes the light blinds us and we want to be in the darkness and so on. So we do that and we lose the plot. So that which moves towards the light is good. That which moves towards the darkness. And finally, the Shakti is the moral compass. It's the GPS. <laughs> the Shakti. How do you judge? When, when you're with the Shakti, when there's more Shakti, you're moving in the right direction. When, they're moving, when you're in the land of uh, Shakti-less, uh, what is it, the lagoon of no Shakti, you're in moving in the wrong direction. It's the internal compass. Once you've been awakened, you have this GPS installed. That's the installation of the GPS. It's there, it just hasn't been enlivened. It hasn't been switched on. Girish hasn't come and given a password and a thing. <clears throat> so Shakti is the moral compass. Okay, what is, how are we doing? I've got uh, how many more of these, this section. I've got two more. I think we'll just do this section. Okay. There's only one section There are left. two more. What? There's only one section left, really. I've got two more anyway. The next one is called... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well you know I'm, I'm writing these things in my study, and then I face the satsang and I think oh what a title. <laughs> the, the next one's called <laughs> the utilitarianism of Bentham and Mill. <laughs> I can explain. Uh, Jeremy Bentham and. Uh, James Mill were uh, English philosophers in the 19th century, and they created something called utilitarianism. 
which will be explained here. Now I'm going to re rewrite utilitarianism in terms of yoga. Go ahead. Point. The utilitarians held that actions that produce happiness and pleasure for everyone involved are good, and those that produce unhappiness and pain for everyone involved are bad. It's a, it's a, a simple but very potent notion. Go ahead. Next point. If utilitarianism is applied to consciousness, then it is correct. It is a correct theory. As in the previous one. Good. Next point. So that which moves people towards the self is good, and that which takes them away from the self is bad. So this is um, uh, consciousness utilitarianism that I'm preaching. It's not just good in terms of pleasure or wealth. It's good in terms of shakti. That's the ultimate good. Next one. The final one in this, uh, this suite of consciousness ones. The problem of suffering is a consciousness problem. Okay, go ahead. The problem of suffering is a consciousness problem, unlike the problem of poverty, a pandemic, or the environment. Only consciousness can overcome suffering in this sense, and only via interiority. To sum up, the problem of suffering must be overcome by consciousness itself from within. Everyone wants to overcome the problem of suffering. The problem of suffering is the main human problem. Everyone is dealing with the problem of suffering, a feeling of, of lack, of something wrong, uh, and we all try to fix it. Uh, we think poverty is the cause of suffering, so we try to fix that. And then the pandemic is a form of, the environment is the cause of suffering. Inequality is the, the cause of suffering. All these things are the cause of suffering, but if we fix them all, if we had a world in which no one was racist, in which the environment was uh, protected, uh, in which uh, wealth was distributed, we'd still have suffering because suffering doesn't come from those causes. The root of suffering uh, is interior. It's an inner thing. And so to overcome the root cause of suffering, one has to do an operation uh, in consciousness within oneself. So the Buddha said, there is suffering. That was his first statement. There is suffering. Suffering as a cause and suffering can be overcome. And the way to overcome it was through meditation, through yoga, through interiority. So that's my suite on consciousness. <coughs> Let's see if I if one I have two more. But uh last one. What? Last one. Oh, I'll do one more. I'll do one more. And then we'll meditate. This one is called karmic momentum. This is a different topic. You ready? Go your on. individuality, your jivahood, is hurtling through time and space. 
Okay, let's relish that for a moment. <laughs> you as a jiva, as an individual, are hurtling through time and space. This is a really big picture of you. It's not about all the mundane. Can be a hurtling through time and space. Okay, go on. The force that propels it is your karma, based on thoughts, feelings, and actions. You're impelled by karma, by past thoughts and actions, propelling you on this hurdle, like an asteroid going through space. You know, there's a, there's a meteor coming to the Earth, going to hit the Earth, going to knock it off its course every once in a while. We hear about a big thing looming, you know? And so we're like that. We're hurtling through space. Sometimes we hit a big body and get blown to smithereens, and no more dinosaurs exist. Uh, but uh, next point. Your karma defines your momentum in life and from life to life. <clears throat> OK, go on. You don't have to stop your karmic momentum. Rather, you have to connect it to the self. OK, this is the subtle point that we have a certain karma that we've accrued in our lives. And that determines where we are in life, uh, you know, like our, the shape of our body, the health, uh, the wealth, the family, the nation that we're in, all these things determine. And, but none of those things define us. They're a karmic situation. They're hurtling through. And in that hurtling, we can continue to hurtle. But we should remember the self amidst the hurtle. That's the point. It's a different thing. So we want to adjust our karma. But really, what we should be doing is connecting to the self. That's the thing that's going to make the difference. You don't have to stop your karmic momentum. Rather, you have to connect to the self. Good. That connection will work on your karmic momentum in whatever way is best. If you make that connection to the self, your karma will be improved too. Certain karmas would disappear. So whatever the karmic predicament, know the self. Connect to the self. <clears throat> the delusion is that we somehow have to change that karmic predicament. Get a job that has more status. Get acquire more wealth, get a fancier car, then we'll be okay. All these things. Not true. Not true. Okay. Debbie, what do you think? Meditation is coming. <laughs> Which one did you like best? Uh, well, I like the first one, broad mind, deep feeling. Yeah. What do you want to say about it? Uh, Get your mic on. You Put your mic. Oh. You I said everything. everything. You wanted to say? No, you said everything. I don't need to say anything more. <laughs> okay. And I love what Ramana, your thing on Ramana, because that's ashram life. So... Which they book? want to know about ashram life. That's that's it. Yeah. And uh, 
I like the core of the universe. I like a lot of them. Of course, you know, I'm a bit lukewarm on the, on the uh, really intellectual ones, but I can see, <laughs> I can see why you want to do them, though. I can see, or at least I good, think, good. I perceive that you actually have something quite profound to say to scientists. Well, that you want to leave a message for them, or you want them to have a message, this message of what all this. And so I, I, I had this sponda in the middle of it that you should write, actually write an essay or a paper or something and put all of that. You've got a lot of thoughts and uh, you know, a lot to say to them. Don't you think? Yeah. <clears throat> Doesn't he? Yeah. You should leave them something. Yeah, okay. I want to trick them into knowing that they believe in miracles also. That's right. <laughs> well, I think if anyone could well, do it. Huh? As a scientist, I felt convinced tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I was always a little bit skeptical, but tonight you popped something in my brain. <laughs> Sitting there in his orange skirt, he got convinced tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. You keep sharing this teaching with us, but none of us are scientists. <laughs> All right, that's you, a good you point. Do. Don't you think? I think he does. I really do. Uh, somebody, somebody. Scientific yeah. journal. Yeah. Let's meditate for 10 minutes. That's very good. <laughs> so we'll meditate on the core of the universe, the conscious core of the universe. And um, Bhavana Rako, connect to the inner self. Turn within and see if you can connect to the Shakti. The Shakti is the vibrating energy of the divine that is our essence. So try to connect. There'll be different things blocking access to the Shakti. Different things, dramas in our life, different problems that we have. But just let them go for now. Put them aside. You can deal with them later. But right now, connect to that conscious core of the universe, that shining, vibrating, delicious, loving, illumined center that's within every person. See if you can make your connection with it in your own unique way. And we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sakurna Maharaj Kijay.